0: Hi, everybody. Uh, thank you for spending your sunny afternoon with us. With that, let's get to the people that are on stage with me, and I'm going to uh, tell you about every single person that is here. And, Joanna, pr- forgive me if I get, your, if I get the uh, pronouncing your last name wrong. Solodorov. No, Saladiroff. This Is this one? Oh. That's, yeah.
1: That's a I'm a producer. Uh- <laughs> It's Salatara. Salatara, But you were Excuse close. me. Um, she produces the hit
0: comedy podcast, Suit Up Queens, for WNYC Studios, and also appears as Phoebe Robinson's on-air sidekick uh, on the So Many White Guys podcast. Previous to that, she was a producer for The Longest Shortest Time, which was hosted by Hillary Frank. And her work has also been heard on This American Life, Unfictional, Serendipity, and Y.O.Y., and in addition to her on-air work, Joanna has been doing live comedy and storytelling for several years. Before her radio life, she worked as a community organizer at Minneapolis. Um, the Soul Glow Project is joining us. We have two of their members. The Soul Glow Project is a variety show, which is co-hosted by Keisha Zolar, Zolar uh, Anna Suzuki, and Emily Shore Lesnik, um, and Just Latasha. We'll be getting into the details of their podcast, but I want to give them um, some biographical info. Or give you guys some biographical info about them. Um, Emily is an improviser, sketch performer, writer, producer, and educator. You guys have so many multi hyphenates, this whole crew. Um, writer, producer, educator. She lives in Harlem, and she's very passionate about social justice, e- uh, equality, and comedy, equity, and comedy. And in 2013, she performed her solo show, This One Time at Jew Camp at the Magnet Theater. Uh, we'll be talking about that. Anna Suzuki is a New York-based Japanese Jewish comedian and actor. She's appeared in numerous comedy festivals around the country, and she's appeared on Younger with Hillary Duff, Orange is the New Black, HBO's High Maintenance, Amazon's Most... Just, I mean, just a lot of stuff here. Um, Anna is one-fifth of the all-Asian skep- sketch team, Asian pop. By the way, there's going to be a lot of shout-outs today. Um, I saw Asian pop two or three weeks ago. Thank you. You guys have to see it. I mean, everything that these people are, are producing, please get behind, but it is currently uh, at UCB Chelsea, and I really recommend seeing it. It's a wonderful wonderful... wonderful show. Um, so, uh, we'll be talking about that. Mike Sachs is, uh, has been published in the New Yorker, Time, Esquire, Vanity Fair, GQ, Radar, Believer, Vice, Women's Health, Salon, Premier, New York Observer, McSweeney's, the New York Times, Washington Post, Crack, uh, Mike Sachs is awesome. He has written, this is not on his biography here, but this is very, uh, it's a very personal inclusion of mine. He has written what I consider comedy Bibles. Um, They are are some of the best books uh, that have dissected the, I guess, in my mind, a century of comedy and has talked to some of the living legends. And uh, if you haven't taken a look, at the two books, uh, Poking a Dead Frog and uh, Kicking, um, Here's the Kicker. I really highly recommend uh, reading those along with his other work. Uh, S- uh, Sachs is also the editor, editor of Care to Make Love and That Gross Little Space Between Cars uh, with contributors from Patton Oswald, Judd Apatow, Dave Eggers, Nick Hornby, Sam Lipsight. George Saunders, Amy Sedaris, and others. Uh, he's originally from Maryland and lives here in New York. And he is the host uh, and producer as well, or no, host of uh, doing it with Mike Sachs. Rob Schulte is the producer. I think he's here tonight. Rob, where are you? Right he, and there. Rob here. And I Rob? Does everything.
2: I, don't do, I do very, very little. This guy really does it all. So.
0: And Rob is also... Uh, one of the guys that was behind Tim's um, uh, comedy move to or podcast move to New York. Yeah, he helped
3: well. me a lot during my transition from producing the show in Chicago to New York. Um, and so, all the praise <laughs> to Rob Schulte. Let's all stand up now. <laughs>
0: thank you, Rob, and thank you for being here. Um, finally, Tim Barnes, who who just spoke, is a Los Angeles-born, Brooklyn-based comedian and writer whose absurdist humor brings light to social issues from unexpected angles, and he's written for AV Club, the NPR quiz show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, (laughs) and even documented his testicles once for men's health. Uh, He is a creator and host of the acclaimed interviewing storytelling podcast, It's All True, which was formerly in the WBEZ network of podcasts. Um, Tim, I actually want to start with you. Uh, I have a, a question, maybe a deep cut question for right. you. And I'm I was ready. wondering if you could talk to us. Where is Vista Del Lago High School?
3: Where <laughs> in the country is that? It is in uh, Riverside County, California. Do you
0: currently, you're, you're in comedy and you're making a podcast can you relate anything production-wise uh, that you learned, that you picked up in the regional occupation program? Oh, my God. What, what, what uh, <laughs> at this point, can you point to in terms of a,
3: a genesis? With
0: Was that the first time you were doing produc- media production of any kind?
3: That was the first time I did media production of any kind. It was like this after-school program where you could focus on video editing and producing uh, like short films and stuff with other people who are interested in media at the high school I went to. And what was um, the decision behind that? My time, first passion in age. life was to be a filmmaker. Okay. So I kind of moved a lot of my, what I learned in editing with video into how I like to edit with audio. Yeah. Nice. How did you find this information? It's, uh, <laughs> it's a site called LinkedIn. It's yeah. on there. You
0: may want to edit it. That's amazing. Uh, LinkedIn. <laughs> Joanna, what um, what ca- have you learned? What can you tell us that you learned in Cape Cod about ukuleles?
1: Oh, my God. <laughs> I feel like you're going to uncover some sort of, like, Don't illicit going part get, of my past. It's
0: not going to get too crazy. But tell us, what, what was the story behind learning about ukulele? Where were you in Cape Cod? Why were you there?
1: Okay, so I... This is crazy. Uh, I was working as a community organizer in Minneapolis and was did it for like eight years, which is a really long time to be that in is. that field. And I was burnt out and was like, I want to do something creative. I had started doing a web series, but like in a very typical fashion, I started listening to This American Life and was like, that's what I want to do. So I signed up for this, um, basically this like audio production program called the Transom Story Workshop. And it's in Cape Cod. I would look into it. They're phenomenal. If you're thinking about going into radio, it was like the best decision that I have ever made in my entire life. Um, and so you go for two months, and it's just like eight hours a day of learning and talking about radio production. And like some of the best in the business come, and we'll speak with you meet with you. That's how I met Hillary Frank um, and eventually ended up working on her show. So anyway, what they do is they're like, okay, find a story, like, you show up, and on the first day, they're like, find a story, and I heard that there was a ukulele, um, like, a group of women who were learning how to play ukulele together, and that really piqued my interest, and so I ended up going to this place that was called the Katuit Center for the Arts, and met these, like, incredible older women who, like, had no musical background, and for, like, every single person had some, like, motivation to pick up an instrument for the first time. So in that story, that was the first story I ever produced. One woman, her father was turning 100, and he was always disappointed in her that she had never learned an instrument, and so she learned how to play ukulele so she could sing happy birthday to him on his 100th birthday.
0: It's a a really beautiful... Especially for a first-timer, it's an incredible piece. Thank you. And it's a a great trajectory. Um, Thanks. Emily... How did you decide on writing Can We Laugh? Jewish American Comedy, an Expression of Anxiety in Time of Change? What, did, yes. what in your life at that time did uh-huh. that connect for uh-huh. you?
4: Yes. Well, that was my honors thesis at, at McAllister College. Um, and I knew that I was really interested in comedy and wanted to think about it in an academic way as well as like doing it. And Were
0: you, were you performing at the time?
4: Yeah, I was doing improv in a group in college and then like also in the Twin Cities. That's Joanna and I are connected that way, actually. Um, And then I also was really interested in the racial identity of Ashkenazi Jewish people. Um, That's my heritage. And I was interested in thinking about what it means to be white as a... Jewish person so that was my thesis so I watched three movies um, many times Goodbye Columbus, Annie Hall and The Graduate and did like a close reading of the masculinity and how that had to do with what it meant to be Jewish and American and white and um, I didn't know anyone read it though every month I get um, download updates from like and like what the search terms were that got people to it so it was like uh, usually it's like Jewish anxiety funny and then and then they find my like thesis from 2011 so well, I'm glad you found it. <laughs> there's a few
0: people that you cover in that which Mike you've actually I believe have talked to. You you oh, do cover what? pieces like you talk about the graduate. Yeah. There's uh, the work of Woody Allen, Marshall Brickman you did talk to in your book, uh, Marshall yes. Brickman and Bruce J Friedman who
2: wrote Stern which influenced uh, some of these movies.
4: Yeah. I definitely read And about Buck them.
2: Henry,
0: you talked about Buck to, Henry, as, who's not Jewish, yeah. but who captured that voice very well. Um, you and I share an alma mater. Really? Winston Churchill. Well, I had no idea. Um, and one of the things I... Dick Maryland. Yeah. One of the things that I'm, I'm actually thrilled by, by your work, besides the, the sort of comedy advocacy, if I can call it that, that you've done with your books, but your own comedic work is, as somebody from the Maryland, D.C. area... I hate political comedy. That's oh, so true. I hate political comedy, and I don't feel unless I'm not trying to to say anything. I don't feel like you're a political comedian, which I'm. I'm like, thank God about. But I do feel, and you've talked about this. I do feel you you embody character comedy. Can you talk a little bit about what what that means? Uh, what is what is character based comedy mean? Well, in DC where we grew up, their political based comedy is really.
2: Very popular, they have the Capitol steps who do musical parodies of um, political you know p- presidents, politicians. not my thing. Mark Russell was another guy who was very popular he 's written five thousand songs, according to him. He wears a red, white, and blue bow tie. Uh, everything is very political, so it was that sort of thing that I grew up with that I really didn 't like the, the type of humor that I liked was character based and I'm, I remember going to a uh, a library and looking at. Um, syndicated newspaper humor about the Nixon era and how dated it felt and then going to look at Aristophanes and other Greek playwrights and how fresh it was because it was based on comedy and based on character. And I think character-based comedy, whether it's Woody Allen, Charlie Chaplin, Ricky Gervais uh, in The Office, that to me, that's untethered to time and place, I think will outlast everything. And it was really... Um, This is pre-internet, so it's hard to find that type of humor. It was mostly on PBS at that time, whether it was Money Python or movies on Saturday. But DC is a very, very uptight city in a lot of ways, in in some ways, the marble aspect of it. But there's also the real aspect of it, which produced Discord Records, which I'm a huge fan of, Fugazi, Minor Threat. And that to me was always something that I thought, well, if these guys can do it, I can do it too. And that's sort of stayed with me even when I started podcasting. Rob and I talk about this. It's sort of a punk aesthetic is that you can do whatever you want to do out of your garage and you don't need permission.
0: It also your show and the pieces that you do in your show have a regional specificity to them as well that that I believe sort of uh, warrants it being called uh, uh, character based comedy. There are references, I mean Granted, I'm a bit biased because I know the references. When you mention Montgomery Mall, or you're talking about something on Rockville Pike, or these these ex-girlfriends, but it's a it's a beautiful version of of regional comedy that doesn't mire itself and and. I never heard that growing up. There was never. Maryland-based comedy.
2: I, it, it was always in London or New York or Los Angeles, and I I like using those uh, the specificity of that because really what I know that that I know is in my blood is Maryland, D.C. I've lived in New York for seventeen years, and I still I just don't feel it as it being home. But having grown up in in D.C. and Maryland, I, you know, I know it very, very well. And, and I worked retail there for 10 years. So a lot of these characters that I work with and that I was friends with, I sort of, I think they're underrepresented, uh, especially in comedy. Um, and I, I like to, uh, you know, it's just, it's just fun for me to put in Montgomery Mall because that's where I went as a kid. I just don't know about malls around here
0: still, 17 years later. So it's fun. It's just a fun thing to do. And are you we're not and you out of all of us did not grow up in this country at least for the first 14 15 years of your life uh, Where I were moved,
5: you I moved to this country when I was in 7th grade so I didn't speak English until I was 14 So you your
0: father is Jewish American your yeah. mother is Japanese is yeah, that correct Yeah I'm a Jap
5: Jap <laughs> <laughs> Or Orienta, I get that also. So That's growing so cool. up <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I get that I get that a lot.
0: <laughs> growing up on on both sides, almost like half of the, you know, you're 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 getting into puberty and then you're coming over here. What was missing in media for you as a you know in terms of identity, uh both uh with that Uh, dual identity in Japan and then here in the United States, were you, what were you, number one, what were you craving? Yeah, what were you craving and also what were you consuming?
5: Um, I remember when I first moved here, the first American sitcom I ever watched was Friends and I learned the word lesbian from it um, because homosexuality, at least in the late 90s in Japan, was taboo. So I'd never had a gay friend or I'd never uh heard even heard of gay people until i moved here in 2000 um what was i craving
0: (laughs) is there anything now that you you can point to yeah in terms of the content you're making because soul glow the underlying theme there is an underlying theme of diversity yeah and and, and there is an advocacy behind your podcast for
5: sure and representing underrepresented voices um I would say I found the, the difference in humor really interesting. Um, in Japan, slapstick is king. Uh, and things that American people make fun of about Japanese culture, like variety shows and girl bands, um, those are just part of the culture. You know, It's not satire or it's not ironic that those things exist in Japan. Um, so I found the... Uh, this sarcastic nature of American humor. Interesting. Um, yeah, just difference in humor and then sort of relaying that to SoGlo. Uh, yeah, we like to represent underrepresented voices. I mean, as an immigrant, as a person who learned English as a second language, I mean, I know I'm fluent now. Um, very smart. Um, you know, um, as a biracial person, um, We don't see a lot of those people in media still, right? Yeah. Especially not in comedy. Yeah, not in comedy.
0: And besides producing and creating this podcast, um, Emily, correct me if I'm wrong, but both of you are still performers. Emily, are you you mostly focusing on education on this point?
4: Yeah, I'm a teacher, um, which is like a big full-time job right now. And, and you're
0: doing public school? I love it. What's I work in range? an independent
4: school, so also in a place that is uh, historically and predominantly homogenous. Um, and I'm interested in both of those spaces, thinking about what it means to like infiltrate. So Soul is kind of like the big thing that I do comedy-wise these days, which feels really fulfilling. Um, but I'm performing. I perform improv shows sometimes, but not as much as I used to, for sure.
0: Joanna, uh, speaking of sort of duality, you're producing a show which at the core is, uh, for a lot of us, like a celebration of stand-up, celebration of a form. Yeah. Yet it's on public radio. What is the balance? What is the? What are some of the challenges and the surprising ways in which you've been able to sort of finesse those two areas? And is it just easier than we think?
1: I mean, that's why podcasting is so amazing is because like I work for a public radio station and two dope queens could not would not pass like the FCC regulations or like if we bleeped that show out that would be like the most insane thing in the world so like that's what I love about um like the medium itself and that even a norm like organizations like WNYC like we can have a podcast where you can talk about absolutely anything and everything in a way that you could never if it was like on the actual like terrestrial radio so that's what's so exciting in WNYC we're like in a phase right now where we're very like experimental and that's cool too so like that's part of being a a part of WNYC studios which is sort of like the podcast realm of our organization and also like where we're just like stirring up new ideas so like I think I think like podcasting has actually like influenced organizations Mm. more than anything like because I think podcasting has like brought about the opportunity to like I, I totally agree with Mike on saying that there's like a DIY aesthetic to podcasting and like bring that into public radio and like sort of that aesthetic comes with it and the ability to experiment and like have Phoebe and Jessica talk about like anything and everything and have our comedians talk about like anything and everything and there's like It's really cool. It's really cool. I don't, and like when I was on The Longest Shortest Time, we also did a podcast where we had Dan Savage on as a guest and it got like, we actually like, I didn't know how to make the explicit button. Like I'd been working there for a long time and I had to like have somebody train me how to put an explicit button on things because I'd never used one before in my like public radio experience. So it's just, it's like very cool. Like, I think that podcasting is, like, influencing organizations more than anything and, like, letting organizations expand what they're doing. Like, the
0: organizations are allowing it? They're open to it? Is there any, do you feel like there's friction or or it's really just, we're going to explore? I think
1: there's, I mean, I can only speak from my experience at WNYC and there's just, like, so much enthusiasm. There's so much enthusiasm and producers right now are being encouraged. Like, bring your ideas. Like, let's make it. Let's see what we can do. Um, I just put on... Uh, a show with Michelle Bouteau called the Michelle Michelle Bouteau's low budget talk show and it's just like it's it we did two live shows last week and it was basically like a really intentionally kind of crappy take on like a late night talk show and when I brought the idea to my um to the VP of my co- company, she was just like or of my department, she's like, just do it, make it, let's do it. I like the idea. Do it. So like yeah i think that 's the thing is I think that like podcasting is actually able to expand like the diy aesthetic like within these larger organizations, and that i 'm just like so excited about that
0: tim you kind of i i would almost attribute a there's a there 's definitely a construction, but there is a DIY element to your show that almost I wouldn't listen back, even like the initial, the first episode was with Shannon Cason. Oh, it Kaysen, sounds
3: horrible. Yeah, but
0: no. Well, I mean, it is a, it is a first episode. <laughs> I'm not going to say anything. But what's yeah. what's there? <laughs> what's there though? Uh, all the way to to the current episodes is there is a playfulness. It almost it, what it reads to me as animation in a way because what what Tim does for those that haven't listened to Tim's show, um, it's usually about fourteen fifteen minutes yeah. each episode and. Some of it's studio, some of it's live, Tim. Um, And Tim's got this mellow, wonderful voice. But he allows these comedians, storytellers to get on and tell a story, telling a funny story. But Tim and uh, the the production design of it, it sounds like animation. It's beautiful because he interjects these sort of wiles of fantasy from, from your head into the story that really highlight, which is such a challenge for a live event. And I was curious, especially listening back even from the beginning, where – going from uh, – what's, what's the high school again?
3: Vista Del Lago High Vista School. Vista Del Riverside. Lago
0: to the point okay. where, long, yeah. the, to the point where uh, It's All True started. <laughs> was, there a, was there a format where you're like, I want to try this? Because it's super visual, the style that you're doing. And it also – it's such a beautiful way to highlight – the strengths of the people that you have on. Is there a style that you were emulating? Was there something you just wanted to try, something that you wanted to see audio-wise in stand-up that you hadn't heard?
3: Well, uh, since I was a kid, I would pretend to be a talk show host. And this is embarrassing, but I would... I would watch my shadow on the playground just like posing like I'm doing a monologue (laughs) and just like say random things. So that's part of it. That's pre-Vista Delago High School. That was (laughs) 74th Street Elementary School in California. Um, So, but when I got to the point, I had this friend who had this podcast equipment. I was interested in radio, like because of shows like Radio Lab and also the Dinner Party Download.
1: Ah, and I knew that
3: yeah. storytelling was popular. I, even though I host moth shows on occasion, I hosted one where you won uh, a couple of weeks ago or a couple months ago, probably. Yeah. I don't, Get, I, don't, I still don't really like storytelling shows at the same time like because I feel like I want to know the person who's telling the story. And so the whole point of the show was to have these regular segments that you hear every episode. Uh, and I want to recreate like what happens when you get lunch with somebody and then you're just talking about whatever. And then there's this spark that happens, this crazy story that you can't explain even if like you try to tell someone what your friend told you the next day. So I try to recreate that and build this tension up to the story that the guest is going to tell. So they have to tell me what the headline a newspaper would use, uh, to describe their story before we get into it.
0: So, uh, like with Roy Wood Jr. The, the, uh, what was the story with um, his dad and and Don Cornelius? There's some there's some <laughs> awesome flights of fancy. Listen, you guys gotta gotta go check this out. Yeah, this but it, so. it was really but just it an
3: was, experiment because I it's beautiful for, for me to experiment with editing audio. So I would just find sound effects from YouTube and put it into GarageBand and, and how, try to make this thing sound like something that someone will want to listen to i didn't even know who the audience was
0: how but. long do these do, th- do these episodes or how do you do you allow yourself a certain amount of time in terms of like do you have a sound library or, or how do you navigate making these episodes
3: i have a general sound library like one rule of thumb that i've discovered for myself is that when you can't think of a sound effect to put in just add wind <laughs> and it always works <laughs> so vague things like a door I know that I'm probably gonna need a door sound effect in the story or footsteps but then everything else it's just like I'll listen to it I'll take notes of things that I think I should add in and then uh just keep going back and forth until I'm tired of myself
0: it's great Mike speaking (laughs) speaking of aesthetic your show has such a specific aesthetic as well um And the format, uh, there's some there's some adjustments with with different episodes. There's there's usually an interview portion uh, with a comedian, a writer, or somebody like Vince Gilligan. But there's a there's there's such a beautiful design, especially when you enter each episode. It has the sound of like early '80s late night television or like bootleg video that you would get from a friend or something. There's such and it really there is that DIY um, Discord aesthetic to it. What, again, almost the same thing uh, that I was asking, Tim, is there an emulation or like where, where's the impetus for that? Is there a genesis?
2: Yeah, that's, there's a pre-internet, it's fanzines, it's bootleg recordings, cassette recordings, and it's the Don and Mike show out of DC. They used to start every show with clips, audio clips. And whether it was, uh, you know, Casey Kasem caught on tape cursing or um, Linda McCartney, warbling hey jude live you know all this sort of stuff i loved but you couldn't find anywhere else so that i always loved and i, I didn't hear it on any podcast and i had a whole library of the stuff that i just kept so i wanted to do that uh and combine with national lampoon radio hour bob and ray and interviews sort of an audio version of my interview books
0: is there is there a format in writing by chance that you were trying to create that with, and then you discover this. Is there any is there any bridge between those two mediums? What mediums? Between writing and audio that you were like... I just oh. found a real freedom for it,
2: because I've written for print only for many years, articles and, and books. And to do this, it opened up a whole new world. And to me, it's more magical than it, than it would be writing for movies, because everything that you can do that you can get away with is something you can do within your own mind. Um, and I, I wouldn't be able to write for something with special effects or if I had to rely on this or rely on that. So everything I write is geared towards, can I get away with that? And quite frankly, most of it, is, it works because of Rob. Rob is an amazing producer. I just come up with these ideas and he'll make it work, honestly. Um, he really does 90% of this stuff. I knew nothing going into it. I still know very, very little. I mean, he started, I started off with just basically, like, drop, what, what do I need? And he told me, you've got to get this microphone, you have to get this, you have to get that. So that was really the gateway into it. But I found once I was into it, it's a very
0: fun way to write. And what about um, even beginning with print, What's your format for, I mean, so many people are curious, and I'm sure I've asked you, how do you get in touch with these people? How do you get these people on your show or to to, to be interviewed for whether it's 45 minutes or six hours? Uh, well, I'm at an advantage. I work at Vanity for a magazine. and.
2: No one knew who I was, and no one still knows who I am in a lot of cases. But it's because of the Vanity Fair name that they'll at least answer and look at the email. And through Vanity Fair, there's someone on staff whose job it is to find the contact for anyone. So at the very least, I'll get through to someone. Whether they say yes or not, I don't know. But in a lot of cases, a lot of people say said and say no now you know, to this day. It's just a matter of going out and being a sort of... Um, You know, keeping at it without being obnoxious is really knowing how to do it. And what I'll do, too, is I'll say to them, listen, you can, I'll send you the edited audio. And I did this with a book. I'll send you the edited interview. You can make any changes you want to it. we don't even have to run it. And I would say out of the 70 interviews I've done for print and for the uh, podcast, only one person uh, has said, I don't want that story in
0: there. Is that rare? what you're offering well yeah i
2: think journalistically it's not looked at as being a good thing but in my mind i'm not a i'm not an undercover reporter i'm not going after politicians so by giving these writers and that's what they are writers the opportunity to go over their own words and to make it sound in their own voice i think is a important thing for them because it it then allows them to be more free in these interviews and not to sort of clam up I don't understand why more people don't do it. I think Playboy used to do it. They would send it to the person, and Paris Review interviews would send it to the person for their sign-off. But there's a real, and actually I got into it with Amazon. They wanted me to interview uh, Trevor Noah, and I said, well, I want to send him the interview before it goes. And they said, well, that's not journalistic." journalistically viable i said well that's the way i do it Mm -hmm. so there's an old school feeling that you can't do it but in my mind these aren't people absconding with funds these aren't politicians these are comedy writers and i see no reason why they can't see i'd rather know that they're not happy with it before it's published believe me than after it's published
0: and you also soul glow does a, a great interview show and people locally there are people that you guys will skype in with one of the things i was listening to a few of the um beginning episodes and getting to know some of your biographies and again i i was joking about the multi-hyphenate thing but i'm i am curious with with there's like a duality of vocations here that i'm really fascinated by and and there's there's translation that you've done for a career Anna. there's uh you know your performance background education academic side are there areas with now creating a podcast interviewing all these people uh um acting as advocates in the both comedy and diverse world of diversity or or comedy diversity. Are there areas in which you've been surprised that your skills within translation have benefited your performance style or your interviewing style or your education style has been, or vice versa, something that performance has um, benefited in the world of translation
4: I can start yeah, go ahead. yeah. Uh, I think that I have gotten a lot of training in like facilitation of discussion and and not just with students but in like with other adults, specifically around like identity and trying to make space for people to share bravely um, and I've done a lot of interview like anthropological like ethnography stuff and so like knowing that I can't hear myself too much that's probably when we listen back sometimes I'm like I was interrupting too much I was talking too much and that's like when it turns into a conversation and not like making the space for them I'm always I'm always aware of that in myself of like when when do I do that and what should it be cuz if we're just like vibing and I'm like ah oh, that makes me think of this that also feels really good but I definitely lean on the um facilitation training of like let's just make them feel safe and able to kind of share um i think the question that we ask all our guests certain things and like segments have changed over the 100 episodes we've been like this is fun like we used to play two truths and a lie all the time but then we like never really figured out how to play the game after like 50 episodes and um we kind of ran out of stuff to stump each other with. So we stopped doing that. Um, but we always ask, what do people not see when they see you? And I think about that as like the core of any conversation that I'm trying to have or trying to facilitate It's just trying to understand who are you, how do you feel you're perceived and what do you wish people knew more about? Are you
0: saying that's, that's a question that you guys sort of had as a thesis at the beginning of the when you started the show or is this something you've discovered that like oh this is what we really want to ask
5: because because our podcast uh is probably the most diy out of all these programs um (laughs) we do try to have some sort of structure so we have like three to four questions we always ask and that's one of the questions we always ask
0: what are the other ones
4: do we well, we get questions in from Twitter. Oh yeah, that's If you right. ever want to tweet questions, they can be really specific to the guest or they can be really broad. Um, and then we ask what makes people's souls glow so they can share whatever it is, if it's a feeling or, you know, a movie or book. Yeah.
5: Um, and and then, then a recent, yes. <laughs> a recent segment we started is uh, we review movies that none of us has seen. Mm-hmm. Um, so that tends to be funny. Yeah. Um, yeah. and what makes your soul glow yeah. which is an opportunity to shout out someone else or yourself
4: yeah yeah totally
0: your show uh, um Tied Queens it also is there's an underlying celebration of diversity with it whether it's listed as a mission statement or not
6: mm-hmm.
0: but i'm i'm curious with your background and i Trying to figure out the right way to ask this question. Because I was like, I put myself in Joanna's shoes. What would how would I answer this or what would I want to know? Um, Uh don't worry. It's not (laughs) it's not super crazy or anything. But from your background, I mean you you talked about it when we started this afternoon. Um you have a long vocational history and however However, you want to put it, whether it's community organizing, yeah. uh, community involvement, and then even your early radio production work mm-hmm. is a sort of is a celebration of voices. And I was also looking at video clips Cute. of the 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 series, the the street stories, street
1: stories series yeah. you were
0: doing in Minneapolis. And and you're such an advocate. You're such an advocate for people's voices. Um, at the same time, you have a natural comedic essayist voice. You also have just like a good comedic voice Oh, thank you so what is the balance i'm i'm curious about from uh-huh. a producer standpoint you're a producer you have a background in celebrating people's voices but you have a great comedic voice you're a performer how do you sort of where are those areas because i mean for myself i'm not gonna speak for you i gotta admit i there's probably some ego involved in that i'd be like i want to i want to say some stuff right now yeah. or i want to you know i want to be funny However you want to answer that, yeah. basically, or talk about that, dissect that a little bit, because yeah. also Tutup Queens is very strong personalities, mm-hmm. two women that um, are hilarious and, and you do a great job and, and really showcasing mm-hmm. their voices and people that come on.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I guess I'll start by saying that I really wanted to go into radio full time. And I was like, this is my dream. And everybody's telling me like how competitive it is and how, like, you know, you like... I was meeting all these people who'd like started working at, like they got their first internship at NPR when they were 22 and I was like 27. And I was like, okay, my skills are like improv community organizing. And that's it. And I was like, and so as I was starting to do radio, I don't know. And then I did this radio training, but I didn't have a lot of skills and I I felt like I was like, who's going to hire me? Cause I just felt like my professional background was like all over the place. And part of my community organizing experience is I had some experience with maternal health also. And then it sort of just turned out that I met
0: some experience with maternal health.
1: Yeah. More reproductive reproductive health. So um, I uh, like Hillary Frank had like come and spoken at my program and then I ran into her at a cocktail party and it turns out she was like, you're funny and you have a background in maternal, like maternal health and community organizing. Like you're a perfect fit for The Longest Shortest Time because it was like really in line with the values. And she wanted someone who was really funny to sort of like broaden the voice of the show. For so, the, like
0: For those that don't know, can you explain what that show is?
1: The Longest Shortest Time is a podcast that's geared towards like it's about parenthood and families and like the different kinds of families you can have. And so like when I was applying for the job, I was like, oh, I don't have any of the hard skills that you need for this, but it turns out like being funny was like, and I don't, was an asset in a way that I didn't think would be, I don't know. I just doing improv when you're like going to all these shows, you're, I don't know. Sometimes it's easy to be like, what's the point of this? And then it's how I ended up getting hired for my job. And like, you know, what happened is I had this conversation with someone at the station. They're like, where do you see yourself? And I was telling them about my commitment to like the community, like, to community engagement and, um, you know, broadening voices at the station. And then just as I was leaving, I was like, oh, by the way, I'm really interested in comedy also. And that's when they were like, well, we're working on this project. It's two dope queens. And so like, it was just me mentioning it that they were like, you might be a great fit for this but I don't think people so I don't know and then in terms of like my comedic sorry I feel like this is very circular but in terms of my comedic voice I've been able to get that through like working with Phoebe and being featured she was like when she did so many white guys we were she was like showing me her pitch and just like wrote me in and she was like you're the white Robin Quivers to my black Howard Stern and I was like cool so that's how I ended up being on um, the show so now I've been so That's really cool that I've been able to actually like be comedic on or like, yeah, be on the show. And then also like, um, yeah, I am doing like some performances around town and stuff too that are like unrelated to my radio work.
0: Is there a side of the sort of community organizing part of you that you're like, oh, this I actually want to bring in more to the whatever to either Toot Up Queens or the comedy side of Mm -hmm. of, uh, podcasting broadcast?
1: Oh, that's an interesting question. I think... I just feel like it's really important for a show to also like reflect the reality of its listeners, and I think that's why like Two Dope Queens and so many What Guys has like resonated with so many people, is because we do showcase like so many different voices on the show, um, and so in that way, and also just like the popularity of Two Dope Queens, I think shows what audiences have really been looking for. Um, So in that respect, then, yeah, like, we do showcase so many different kinds of voices, and I'm, like, really, really proud that, and from the longest, shortest time to two dope dope queens to so many white guys, like, all of the shows I've worked on have largely been about, like, um, first of all, grounded in, like, highlighting women's voices, which is very, very cool. Like, I feel honored that I've been able to work on shows that, have such a commitment to that and also just like diverse voices across the board so it's cool like I feel like all the shows I've worked on have been really in line with my values as an organizer as well
2: I think there are two great lessons in that and one that you lived a life that didn't just encompass comedy and I think by living a life you can bring that it can only make your comedy stronger and your career stronger and the other thing that you mentioned that I give advice for is, is to network and to make it clear to people that you meet, this is what I want to do. And you may not be ready for it at that time, but there's nothing wrong with saying this is what I want to do and reaching out to as many people uh, in as many different areas and mediums as
0: possible. Actually, that I was thinking about with, with, um, with your books and, and with the interviews that you do for your show. And listening to these these beginning portions, these phone calls to ex-girlfriends and these, these bits that you do on your show that are, that are beautifully made and very much of a voice, of a specific voice. And I, I also putting myself in your shoes, I was like, if, I was wondering if I had talked to some of the most, in, in my opinion, like some of the most illustrious voices behind comedy writing in the last however many decades, I would find it hard to not be self-conscious about how I was creating stuff. I'd be like, oh my God, I've gotten, you know, I, I've got so much background to the world of comedy and the world of comedy writing. And maybe there's an easy answer for this. Maybe not. But is there a way that you avoid that self-conscious after talking hours and hours and hours and hours, hundreds of hours with potentially hundreds of, of, of people in comedy that you still have such a, an individual voice. Like, how do you sort of avoid that? Well, I got into
2: comedy first and then interviewing after. And interviewing was just a way to reach out to those people I respected and that I knew would be passing on soon, those of a certain generation, those who wrote for the Marx Brothers for your show of shows and other you know, early radio, um, just to reach out and sort of bridge the generations to find out what they're doing and how I could sort of depict um, you know, to, to their brain. And what's interesting is each of these interviews – Every one of them, pretty much, will say, listen, I don't know how others will do it. This is how I did it. And they'll give advice. And overall, the same 10 pieces of of advice you can see across the board. And that is to to live a life, to to network, to to keep working. I can go down the list. But it's, it's pretty, it's very similar. So that influenced me more so than individual voices. Your voice, you can't learn from anyone. No teacher will teach you. You have to teach yourself at the end. But... How did it work for you? What should I do? More importantly, what should I not do? What, do? what What do you You've been through this for 70 years. What, looking back, what would you avoid doing? And by taking that sort of advice, it's been very helpful. And I think more comedy writers should look to those who have been in the, have made a career out of this. Like, how do you do it? And what What should I not do? How do I save time?
0: What have you avoided?
2: Well, there's a lot. There's a million things to do as far as uh, writing. I, I know that. You know, you don't. You don't copyright your work you don't send it you't submit to the the editor in chief and you don 't submit to the lowest you, you submit to the middle you know, there's just a lot of tricks that these people do that you you, you teach yourself over the years and I think in the end, the main advice is to do what you want to do, how you want to do it, and to keep moving forward. Because every career, even Mel Brooks, is going to have its ups and its downs. No one is completely happy and content with their career. Everyone wants something else. But if you move forward and think positively and and have a good attitude about others and other people's comedy, don't look at it as being competition and keep moving down that path, I think it's a very healthy thing. Which I didn't know at first. I had to learn that. That's one of the things I had to learn. But I think that's, that's what I found. Everyone who's successful Festival has has heeded that advice
0: tim your your background's mostly in stand-up at this point besides besides the podcast we're talking about today speaking of comedy writing yes um did you what was the initial why start the podcast were you doing stand-up when you started the podcast i was
3: doing stand-up
0: what was the highlight of of doing was it just another medium that you wanted to try or was
3: i so when i moved to chicago i moved to chicago from uh california mm-hmm. and i went to school for film, had this vague interest in comedy. So I started off doing improv stuff, realized I didn't really like that and started slowly really focusing on stand-up. But in the process of like <laughs> discovering myself basically in Chicago, I ended up doing a bunch of volunteer stuff and I ended up doing a bunch of volunteer stuff at WBZ. I realized I had this interest in, in radio in some way. And I was doing, uh, I was writing for this satirical website called the Whiskey Journal based in Chicago. And the guy who created that had this podcast equipment that he wasn't using. And so he said, if you have any ideas, I'm not using this. You can just make a podcast for the website, basically. And so that's why the podcast has a sort of headline focus, because it was basically like a <laughs> like uh, young comics trying to be the onion, basically. Um, yeah, so it really was just an experiment. Does that answer the question?
0: Sure. Yeah. Right. Were you using WBEZ stuff when you first... Uh... No,
3: when I first did it, I was using my friend's mixer... Uh, two just like regular s- microphones you'd use uh, on stage uh, and I would connect the mixer to GarageBand and I would record it in my friend Ian Abramson's basement, which is very creepy like inviting guests to a basement to record <laughs> uh, a basement that's not your basement uh, to record a podcast How would you is very... explain that? Just... I mean most people like Shannon, Shannon's cool with me it would be people that like I respected but who were attainable so like um Yeah, it was very weird, and then, so then I got this internship, uh, this podcast internship at uh, WBZ, and I mentioned the podcast, and, like, that's how it evolved, and so I got this natural progression of, like, oh, like, once I got that WBZ email, I could easily get, like, bigger names, or just people who were coming in to promote stuff like Eddie Izzard, I could just interview them, and so it's been this crazy thing. Like, sometimes I hate the podcast I created, but it's such a part of me that I can't, Like, escape it.
0: Why do you hate it? What's the...
3: (laughs) Because I'm the only person working on it. Like, it's so frustrating. Like, I don't... Sometimes, like, I'll finish interviewing someone. I'm like, I don't feel like spending days, (laughs) like, hours editing this together. Well, how does... Um, Where does the umbrella of WBEZ fall in? When did they
0: get involved?
3: That was probably... I think 15 episodes in. Oh, wow. So, so fairly,
0: fairly close to the beginning. Yeah. yeah.
3: Yeah. And I had already had like general relationships with the people there. So like people just kind of knew me mm-hmm. and, uh, Joe DeSoe, who, uh, still is the head of the, uh, podcast department there. Um, just listened to a few of the early episodes, gave me some good advice of how to like fine tune it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, moved on from there.
0: So WBZ WNYC, Both your shows involve a live event involve mixing and editing from a live event. The predominantly most of your shows are from a live event. Am I, am I most right? of them
3: aren't, but I would like to oh, okay. uh, move towards them only being live shows. Cause that's a lot easier. A lot of the me.
0: recent ones <laughs> seem to be, or seem to be events locally. So yeah. there's, there's stuff at union hall and then there's, there's all of these. I mean, there's a huge portion, the a huge portion of the podcast is from a live event. Can you talk to us and walk us through from a producer's standpoint, creating audio, setting up a live event for pulling out audio and then the actual post production part of a comedy event and going this sucker was 72 minutes and we got to turn it into 24 and, and this part maybe is there a portion of sweetening certain, um, certain moments and things like that. Can you walk us through that a little
1: bit? Yeah. Uh, Well, first of all, Doing live, like, before I had done sort of one-on-one interviews with people, and then the first time I saw, like, the Pro Tools session from a live event, which had, like, seven different tracks, I, like, almost crapped my pants. It was, like, so intimidating. It was crazy. So, like, uh, there's just, like, a lot of factors. Because, for example, like the audience sound is picking up whatever like the person on stage is saying so that like it's there's like a lot less flexibility when you're editing like versus an interview show when you're editing um a live show um it's cool because we have like an incredibly talented team of engineers at WNYC who like do this full time so the setup is that um yeah our engineers come they like plug into the soundboard of the live show um and we just record it live and bring the audio back, and then my um, executive producer Jen Poyant and I just like listen to the tape and pull it pull it all together, and then we do some editing. We work with um, our engineer Joe Plord to like add it's cool, like, initially when we started the show, I don't think, I I don't know if you've listened to Two Dope Queens, but, like, at the top, we have, like, a very sound-designed element, where we have, it's basically, like, Phoebe and Jessica talking, and then we have our sound designer come in and, like, finesse everything, but in terms of the editorial process, um, you know, we just work really hard to, sort of, condense like, for, like, typically a Two Dope Queens live show is about like, two hours long, and Phoebe and Jessica often, like, They chat for a long time, and so what we do is we just try to, like, condense everything, Um, and then also we have an engineer who, like, pays so much attention to detail, so, like, the audio quality, we try to make it as, like, pleasant as possible to listen to also.
0: What, if you don't mind sharing, what going into the process of being a producer for a show Mm -hmm. like this, that's both studio and live that you would, you know about yourself going in, you'd be like, this part is going to be hard for me. And now looking back, you're like, damn it. I'm I'm able to do that now. Like I I do that. Is there a part of it with that? You're almost surprised that how good you've become at doing this blank part of it.
1: Oh, that's a really interesting question um
0: there's many there's so many moving parts with a show like that like yeah. you said there's the sound design of the beginning segment you got a, you have know, a live event portion you gotta produce that and you gotta also pull uh, bring things down in terms of time there's, yeah there's just a lot happening
1: yeah I think for me just the figuring out what I think will like resonate with our audiences the most has been really fun and sort of being able to hear things Through their ears, I think, is, like, what... So, oh, okay. So, like, we just produced an episode with, like, Love Advice featuring...
0: uh, Jessica's mom. Yeah, with Jessica's
1: mom and Phoebe. And we had listeners write in these, like, all of these relationship questions. And there was, like, a huge range. And, like, working on a show like that, um, like, I knew exactly which questions, like, I feel like our audience would, like, love to hear the most. I knew, like, I felt, like people I don't know it was just cool I was able to sort of like as I was making it I was able to hear it through the ears of our audience which is like a very cool experience and it makes editing much easier when you feel like you have a better idea of what you think your listeners love the most about the show and I think that just comes with time and I'm kind of curious like with Tim who's also worked on a comedy show sort of like getting to know your listeners better as you're editing.
3: I feel like I still don 't know my listeners that 's all, but I, like hearing your process is like the dream, right because like oh i 'm just bouncing ideas past people like for me it's it 's usually just me, and I feel like, is this done by the by the end of it i don 't know okay. i 'm done with it i don 't even like it anymore <laughs> uh, so yeah, like my process is just like I think this is the right the right move <laughs> uh, right now um. But yeah, I actually really enjoy the the live shows, and I think for me it's easier for me to get five people to. Be, I mean, I for live shows I try to get four people, so each person is their own episode. So that kind of stream, stream streamlines a lot of trying to book people individually uh, and get them to show up to your basement. Um, so yeah, I like that, and I like like a live show is my interaction with the audience. I have no idea who the listeners are in the podcast, but hearing that back and forth and i feel like it adds something else to the conversational nature of the stories too because uh i mean i do laugh a lot (laughs) when people tell me stories but like we're both me and the the guests are both trying to get the audience to laugh while they're telling this personal story as well so
0: so how what about you what are some of the highlights and uh challenges you face with producing because f- you've had a few episodes we, of uh, live event shows
5: we started as a live show at UCB when we So we were not a podcast at first. We were just a live monthly show at UCB at Pritzker Citizens Brigade, Uh, and then it turned into a podcast. Um, And we, but we also used to do a lot of live shows as well. Um, And we just had our hundredth episode. Thank you, um, (laughs) with Mara Wilson, yeah, um, who was Matilda, yeah, yeah, and yeah, which we recorded and had a lot of issues with. Uh, Right? Well, no. I said we recorded
4: it live. I didn't say we had issues. Oh, we had some
5: sound issues. Yeah, it was challenging.
4: Yeah. Because, well, yeah, we could say why. Yeah, you can say why. Okay, I'll say why. Um, Because we had talked to the theater that we were doing it at about like hooking up our recording devices to their stuff, and then they were, when we got there, they were like, yeah, we we can't do that. Like, it's just not going to happen. So we, so Anna is amazing in moments like that, because I'm like, ee, and Anna's like, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to, it's a small enough theater that we don't actually need the microphones to make sound, so we will just hold the microphones like they're making sound, but they're just going into the stuff that's like, and then we put it on like a stool in front of us. So we
5: put a Zoom mic on a stool. DIY, uh, <laughs> and just talked into it. Yeah. So we have issues like that. Uh, but we, fortunately, unlike Tim, we actually do have a producer, yeah, Abe. Abe. I don't know if he's still yeah, here. Yeah, he's here. He oh, didn't okay. leave. Okay, cool. Um, who's been helping us edit and mix, right?
4: And make things sound Amazing. Really good. Yeah, because when we started, it was Anna was editing everything. And I mean, I don't know how to do any of that. So I'm in awe always. And you always came up with like a fun outro music song that I yeah. was like a treat for the listener. And then and then Abe gets to help with the balancing of the what, what do you call it? Balancing, yeah, all that is what happens. um (laughs) Yeah, I guess basically for
5: I mean, if I don't know if you guys have podcasts or not, but we just started with a recorder and four mics, and we still record out of Emily's apartment, but it sounds amazing. So yeah, you can do it. Yeah, out of out of
0: everybody here, you guys have the group podcast. Outside of Joanna producing something that that involves a few women, you you're the ones that you're producing stuff with each other. Yeah. A group of people that are on the show that produce it together. So what is the sort of format for doing that? You you get get together once a week in a apartment. What how how is a group comedic a group podcast that's an interview-based show? How what's the process and do does everybody have a certain hat that they wear or you just
5: Well, I think we're all performers first and podcast producers second so scheduling is
4: extremely hard so there our secret is we usually record a bunch of episodes in one sitting yeah. and then release them every week uh so we'll record every couple of weeks together and do a bunch um what happens sometimes we if
5: when when we do have bigger guests with schedule conflicts like um we had uh justin vivian bond on once who is an amazing downtown performance artist yeah so we had to go to their theater and record um but otherwise yeah we usually record about three to four guests at a time um
4: yeah yeah well can i say what hat i think you wear yeah Okay. And then maybe you could say what hat you think I wear. Okay. That's a lot of pressure. We could talk about <laughs> what chance. hat what hat Keisha wears. Sure. Okay. So I think that you wear the hat of being really like, you're really focused on, um, reminding us that it should be funny. And what I mean by that is like, <laughs> no, I mean when we're interviewing someone and we're talking to someone, um, if they if they look a little nervous like they're like did i go on for too long or am i not funny anymore you i'm can, good at
5: reading a room yeah, yeah. And you're
4: really good at that and you're good at making that joke that kind of brings everybody back in yeah. and like i i really value that in you oh, so thank, thank you. you for that yeah. um and i think you're also really good at keeping us like on schedule when <laughs> we're recording oh, thank you Yeah, I guess that's the reading of the room. You know, when you're like, okay, this is great. We gotta also keep going because we're recording another. Well,
5: in the spirit of inclusivity, our podcast is technically rated PG thirteen. So So we try not to curse, which is which was very new to me. Um, (laughs) So I think I like your spirit of inclusivity. That makes my soul glow.
4: Oh, you make my soul glow. And I think I think Keisha, who's who is the third like. The third Spice, and I do want to like really, <laughs> she's the Keisha Spice, um, is, is someone who's really great at sharing, Bruin to bring in her own experience, yeah. and that's really amazing to have too, so.
5: And I think it's unique yeah. to have three uh, people from marginalized groups hosting a podcast, right? Yeah. I don't know anything else mm. that does that. Yeah.
0: Mike, um, speaking of wearing a lot of hats, you do, just in terms of what you're covering both as a writer as a performer um as an interviewer is there with this balance um trying to find a non-awkward way to ask this question not that it's an awkward question i just is there is there advice that uh you could give people in terms of sort of breaking those things up and and like researching for an interview, writing for yourself, uh, working working the job that you do? This is a two-part question. Do you have any sort of advice, anything that you've learned that you could sort of pass on to us? And also, is there an interview uh, style or an area of, uh, of a group of subjects that you want to start moving into that you haven't before? Um, with your show, I mean, you're, you're, ta- you're starting to talk to people like Vince Gilligan and, and people that are, Peripheral of comedy uh, But yeah is there, is there people you want to start talking to? Well I think well to
2: start with that first It's just anyone who interests me I interviewed a doctor who specializes in OCD Because I have OCD And I think there's a link between OCD and comedy writers 75% or so of the comedy writers I've interviewed have OCD Including David Sedaris And I know that depression There's a connection between depression
3: Is Amy Sedaris in the audience? <laughs>
2: Uh, between uh, depression and comedy, but I never knew of one between OCD and comedy. It's just anyone that I find of interest. I mean, I am not making money off the show. I don't have to answer to anyone. And if I don't have to answer to anyone, I'm I'm not making money. I'm going to do what I want to do. And I think that that's, you know, when you start making a lot of money, you have to start doing things and not doing things that you want to do and not want to do. And I think the freedom that you have to do what you want, going back to the punk aesthetic, is that I can interview an OCD doctor. I can interview uh, someone who specializes in uh, mental illness. I can do whatever. And it doesn't have to be directly tethered to comedy. But as far as linking everything together, I think everything, going back to having real-life experience, everything can work towards anything else. And with interviewing people, one of the things that I learned interviewing for books is that you really just have to shut up. First of all, you have, to do, you have to do a tremendous amount of research. And then you have to let them talk. One of my pet peeves is when interviewers try to, uh, be, try to be funnier than the interviewee. And I see that a lot. It's a competition. And it shouldn't be a competition because your role is that of straight men. But by also doing a tremendous amount of research, you'll, you'll make the interviews better. I'll give you an example. I interviewed uh, Marshall Brickman who co-wrote Annie Hall in Manhattan... And he and I did a lot of it, uh, reading of his interviews, and one interview I found, it mentioned that he had a choice in the 60s, one night, to either go to the beach or to go to a party in the valley, and he chose to go to the beach. There was fluorescent plankton that he wanted to see. And he, he went back to his motel, fell asleep. When he woke up the next morning, there was 30 messages waiting for him. The other party he could have gone to was at Sharon Tate's house. It was a night of the Manson murders. So that was the type of thing that I only read in that one interview. And to me, I found that fascinating. Here's another one. Dick Cavett grew up in Nebraska. His garbage man was Charles Starkweather, the inspiration behind Badlands. Now, that doesn't have to do with comedy per se. I, I just find that fascinating how American culture interweaves. And by doing a lot of research... You know, it's, it takes a lot of time, but you will make yourself a better interviewer, and the interview will be better because of that. But in the end, everything just takes a lot of time. It's not; it doesn't come easy for anyone, and I'm sure everyone here can attest. Uh, people work hard to be good, and it's, it's, even if you're natural, you have to work hard, and you have to keep working hard. It's not an easy thing.
3: Yeah do you do you find yourself coming up with like I, I like I come up with a general line of questioning that could easily just not ever happen during the conversation, and I love it when the conversation doesn't go as expected. Do you do the same? Absolutely. thing?
2: Absolutely, yeah. I, I think that's a good thing. I think what isn't a good thing is to not have any questions. If you have questions left over, that's fine. And, but the important thing is to let them guide it. You know, don't don't go by what you have on your on your sheet. It has to be natural. But it it does go back to letting them talk, and they're, they're the attraction, not you. And then you have to sort of guide them, too. Sometimes they'll go off track, you know, you try to get them back on track, but that's where editing comes in. You know, all these interviews that, that I have on my podcast are tremendously inter, are edited. You know, so they could be three hours long, and then Rob ed, uh, edits it down to 45 minutes. And that goes for uh, the interviews I do for the page, too. It could be 100 single space pages that then becomes 15 double double-lined uh, you know, pages for the interview. It just takes a lot of work, and the more you have, the more you have to work with, the better it's going to be.
0: I've got one final question for you guys before we move on to uh, Q and A, and actually, sort of relates to what you just just had. I'm I'm fascinated by weird habits that people have that they have either overcome to benefit them creatively, or that they still embrace. That benefit them creatively so something that is just your idiosyncratic behavior that it's either or either something where it's like i had to get rid of that in order to write every day or i have to do that to write every day or to sort of see the world in a certain place and i was wondering if each of you and it doesn't you don't have to go left field i mean just what naturally is is there something that you do that is just your thing that has benefited you or that has been your achilles heel that you've been able to walk away from and change. And if you don't have an answer, just give oh, us something to yeah. listen to. For a to second or I watch. thought
3: you had the answer, just like how you started <laughs> <Yeah>. this. <laughs> it's like what did you find out about me? Is it? Yeah. Um, I think I laugh a lot in like the podcast, in the interviews, and some people don't like it, but I've kind of like like in some recording situations, I have the opportunity to get rid of my laugh while the person is talking, but I still keep it in because I think that's what, I'm I'm a nervous laugher, so that's part of the, <laughs> the listening experience for my show. Um, and what was the other question? You had you, it was something about something that allows you to see the world that you need to function or something. No, just just or, uh,
0: basically. Is there <laughs> something? Um, You know, as innocuous says, I need to take a long walk, you know, I need to take a long walk. And then that way I get so many good ideas or I clip my toenails on the bus or I don't do that. But like if somebody were, you know, just something that has either been a hindrance to getting something done. That's your idiosyncratic behavior or uh, or something that's like, this is just my thing. This is like the spinach for my Popeye. Sorry, I'm I don't not, know. I'm, I'm like... I, <laughs> I can answer that. I mean, OCD
2: used to prevent me from doing things, but it, it's, it's a power that if you funnel it in a positive way, I now have to write every day. And if I don't, I get nervous. Where before, I would just circle the drain by thinking about this, by thinking about that. So it's a way, you know, learning... Talent is also knowing how to use talent. And I think you have to teach yourself that. That's, no teacher can tell you. And that just comes from sitting down and doing it. And not even sitting down, you know, you, I think you have to realize, too, that creativity doesn't have to be in front of a desk. It can be out walking. It could be at a bar. It can be anywhere. And just as long as your mind is on it and you, you're heating it, I think that's a very powerful thing. But in the end, you do have to find out what is best for you. You know, I'll read about these interviews with famous writers who, who will say, well, I write from 6 a.m. to 9.30, and I write 55 pages. Well, that's great, but if that works for you, it's not going to work for a young student. And that young student has to determine what is going to work best for him or her. So it's really, it's just an act of discovery that you, which is a great thing. I mean, only you can decide and determine what is going to be best for you. That answer is up to you. But I'm just kind of curious, how many people here do have
1: podcasts? Wow. That's awesome. You're amazing.
4: I guess I could, kind of adding to what you had both talked about, about like, doing more than just the thing. And then Jonah, when you said something about being at like just doing improv and Anna and I both like knowingly, because I think there's a, mo- there was a moment where all I was doing was like improv and it was like every night of the week, it was like going to see a show, doing a show, taking a class, interning at a theater. And I wasn't very funny at all. Uh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I can relate to this. Cause I yeah. just wasn't like nourishing my whole self. And so being My whole self and going to you know this kind of talk or doing like I think being a teacher sometimes I wonder I'm like oh is it like I'm less legit now as a comedy person but like students are hilarious and I laugh all the time with them and um I it's a really important part of what I'm trying to bring to who like I am as a complete person and if we're making that space on soul glow for people to be their full selves like then I would be a total loser if I wasn't my complete self as well so that's probably the thing that I've just started to embrace in a big way
2: you have to live a life just because you know every Simpsons episode is not going to make you funny I think you have to get out there right I think you have to get out there and live and experience as much as you can I think that is the most important thing and I wish I had done that when I was younger I didn't Uh, but that's the advice I would give to those who are just starting just live a life as much as life you can live just experience everything
1: I think, I think like the sort of intentionality you're talking about is really important that like creativity can happen anywhere. Cause like when you're trying to make something and especially like, like when I first started out, I was like working full time and doing an internship at a radio station. And it's like, it's just, it's hard when you're busy to make the time to feel like your like creative juices are flowing or whatever. So like, I don't know, I feel corny, but I found that like journaling helps me come up with ideas and when I don't do it it's like I'm like very task oriented and I can like get away with that if I'm like take the time to be more present with myself so I guess I would just recommend like I do think you should sort of like even if you're just going on a walk just being like what's something that I would like to hear that I haven't heard before or sort of just like taking the time to ask yourself a question because like I feel like everything I'm saying is a cliche but with New York you're just going from like A to Z so quickly every single day and I think it's hard to carve out time, like even if you are just riding the subway to think about like what what could be like your next big idea or like what could be like the next conceit of a show or like what's something interesting that maybe you could do to like mix it up from the last thing you did. And when you're just like so task focused, sometimes it's hard to create the space to like explore new ideas. But I think that's I completely agree with but what both Emily and Mike are saying is just to like take a little time because it does take time to be creative. Like it doesn't matter how funny you are, how smart you are, I think it takes like some space
2: and we're at, at, at an advantage in new york you know look up from from your reading look up from your iphone look around and soak it up there's a lot out there that's funny and i think sometimes people will miss that being too insular
5: um i'm gonna wrap it up by saying <laughs> be yourself because i, I as you can see, I'm pretty laid back and low energy, and, um, which is not necessarily conducive for podcasts, but... love it about you. No, I know, but then the three of us are so different. We get that feedback all the time that we're all so different, um, and by I love myself, and by embracing myself, I mean, all I do, all the kinds of work I book on TV now are me, you know, like dry, sarcastic friends. So I guess, um, yeah, just be yourself. Any personality works on podcasts. Mm.
3: And there's nothing scarier than someone with low energy trying to be high energy. Yeah. No one wants to see that. I
5: can't do that. Man. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so if you guys, uh, if anybody has questions, we got mics on either side of the stage down here. So you can come on down and uh, oh my gosh. we will... Go from there. Um, May need to turn on the microphone. It's on the top here.
2: I didn't take any notes. Yeah, flip that switch up. It's all recorded. Here
0: we
6: go. Hello? Can you hear me? Okay. Um, Just to use a comedy term, um, how do you guys know when you've killed on a podcast? Do you guys get likes? Do you guys get uh, Twitter feedback? And another question is, especially for the guy in the green who's done all the interviews, um, inspiration. No, no, no. The comedy, your, your inspirations, the people you've interviewed, and all for all of you who really kind of um, uh, inspired you to get into comedy, and who do you who do you like really really look uh, look up to?
2: Well, that's a inter- really interesting question. How do you know that you're hitting it? And that's another thing you have to teach yourself. And that's something that I. Learn by writing humor for print. You're not out getting laughs. So how do you know whether it works? Well, you don't at first. And in the end, you never really know anyway. You can be in the business for 70 years, and that's what drives people crazy. I mean, it's not like being an electrician or a plumber where this goes into that and then it's produced. People who have been writing jokes for seven years still don't know whether it's going to work or not. But at a certain point, you have to pull the trigger and say this is as good as it's going to get and I have to move on. Otherwise, you'll be working on the same joke, the same story, the same script two years down the road and I don't think that's healthy. As far as influences, the most influential person for me was very specifically Chris Elliott when he was on Late Night with David Letterman. It was, it was a craziness to it that I have never seen before. It was almost as scary as it was funny. And that... To, to this day, is my favorite type of thing, where you, it, it's very realistic. It could be real, it could be fake, and there's there's I don't want to say a danger to it, but a, a spark to it that 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 I love, and I think that makes it exciting. So it's really Chris Elliott on Letterman more than any written comedic source who really influenced me.
7: Hmm.
3: Uh, what was the first part? I know, I know th- no you
7: killed it. How do, how
3: do you know you killed uh, on the podcast? I have no idea unless it's on the because yeah I, is, do you have the concept of killing it? In a, I think it's only for the people involved in the podcast who really have that feeling like I, I asked that question really great. But no one's gonna, no one's gonna compliment you on how you asked a question. I
4: sometimes, like after we record an episode, where Abe will be like, "That was a really fun episode." That was, and then that, thats when I feel like we killed it. I don't even know, you know, about the numbers, but that's that's what feels really good is when like we everybody was just listening and laughing, and it just didn't—it felt effortless. Yeah.
3: But speaking of of writing, I think one of my first comedic influences was reading. When Will Jesus Bring the Pork Chops by uh, George Carlin which I don't know what his process was but I, I would laugh out loud reading it and I know that on stage it was almost word for word a lot of the book so I don't know if he, <laughs> I think he was a writer who knew how to perform his jokes very well because that was the first uh, thing that really especially someone growing up religious like I just bought this book, my parents had no idea what I was reading and I was just like this is so funny, I can't believe someone wrote this down yeah Uh,
8: so, I guess, two-part question, if it's okay? Okay. Uh, first, uh, what kind of guests can you aim for when you're first starting out, and how do you go after them when you don't have any kind of a name? Uh, that's the first question. Uh, second would be, um, how much can you be... I know you talk about being yourself, but I guess there's this element of, you know, oh, but it needs to be funny. How much can you be earnest... Versus having to be a persona uh, like a Colbert type or others uh, when you're trying to be a host of some kind of an interview show.
5: I think we can answer to the first part because we started with nothing. Um, we, I mean, I mean that sincerely. Um, we just utilized our circle of comedians. Um, I don't know what you do, but I wouldn't be afraid of just starting with your immediate circle. And once you have enough content, and you can say this is the sort of thing you have no connection, so you don't. Okay, you don't have any friends?
8: I'm a social worker.
5: Oh, you're a social worker. Okay. Um, but oh, you no. want to do a comedy yeah.
1: podcast?
8: I have been doing a podcast that was more activism-oriented, and I've realized that I really miss, that, I, that, I, that I'm being depressed when I listen to it myself. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I would like to integrate more performers, more of the kind of satirical activism kind of things and, uh, yeah, turn it more towards comedy and storytelling. Uh, so I guess I don't have that... I mean, I had no friends of mine who are improv comedians who are yeah. not professionals, but... Start,
5: start there. And I would say as performers ourselves, I think you're underestimating yourself. There would be... If you gave me your email, I'm sure I could give you 15 comedians who would love to talk to you.
4: Totally. And I also think Twitter, like, uh, there are a lot of people that we've just reached out to randomly um, and like, hey, we think you're great, would you be on the podcast? And that has worked out at least half of the time, if not more. People are really open and um, Eager and want to, to talk. So, as long as, yeah, you can share what you're about um, and what you want to do, there will be people that will be like, sure, yeah, I'll talk to you. And that's been really amazing to see how generous people are with their time.
3: And let them know you're recording in your friend's basement before they get there. <laughs>
4: yeah. Just be upfront. Yeah. Wait, that was the second part of the question?
8: Uh, about being earnest versus, oh, but
1: this has to be fun. I honestly. In my experience, any time where I'm like consciously trying too hard to be funny, it sound, it's like horrible and I cringe when I listen back to it and it's not funny. So I think, especially starting out, like just be yourself. I think like that's what like to me, every single thing I've ever done, it's like authenticity is always the most important part. And I think like that's why people have Two Up Queen so much is because Phoebe and Jessica are like so authentic. I think that's why people love listening to it so much. So I'm like, I don't know. I feel like I sound like a motivational speaker, but I'm like, lean into yourself. But I, th- you should. I think, like, I think especially if you're growing a show and trying to experiment with the format, like, you know, as opposed to like a persona, I think you'll find the parts of yourself that you might want to tease out more, like, in terms of like how you interact with someone. But for now, I think when you're doing your interviews, just act like you're having a conversation with a friend and like see what comes out that you like. And also then you always, you, you get to edit it too. So, but like I say, so like in that way you can sort of control who your persona is or who your character is. But I would recommend just trying to be like as authentic and personal as possible. And especially if you're doing social work, like you know how to talk to people. It's your job to talk to people. I feel like I can relate to that with my community organizing experience and, like, the skills I got working with people in communities. Like, I can't tell you how much they translated to my role, like, in journalism and doing interviews with people. So, I say be yourself. Ditto. Cool. Oh, okay. Sorry.
3: So,
0: I guess I'm one of the many people that was a podcast. Um, That's awesome. And I want to ask you guys about growth and format,
3: especially, I guess... Mike and you have Rob here. Maybe you could talk for him. But after starting a podcast and getting really deep in it, I've done a lot of episodes, and I know you guys have, and you get pretty far, how do you uh, deal with when things start to change with your style and your format? And you feel like, oh, I'm shifting away from what we were doing
0: With instead of just, I guess, staying on task with something that you had at the beginning? Mm-hmm. Um, is there a back and forth between keeping... A, uh, a brand of what you're doing versus things naturally going forward, and how do you manage that?
2: Well, I, no, I think that's a good point. You can sort of lose yourself within the minutiae, and I think the reason why you start a podcast, you always have to keep that in mind, and I sort of lost it for a little while. Uh, the reason I start, I wanted it to be entertaining, not necessarily informative or newsy, and I think you do have to keep the original reason uh, you know, as a lodestar in front of you, but I also think that it's all improv, and you're going to discover what works through improvisation. So I don't think discovering and doing new things is a bad thing. I, learning what works and what doesn't work is what's important. But I think, especially if you're doing it for your for your friends and you know for how many you know subscribers, if you're not getting paid for it, you can do whatever you want, and it's a very personal thing, and it's really. it's up to you it's if it's not what you want then it's not worth doing and you have to just have fun with it and produce what you want to do it's your product
1: also like what I love about podcasting is it's like an experiment like whatever you make is just like a huge experiment and like the format lends itself to that so you could just say like if I were you I would just lean into it and be like we're going to try something different for this episode like let me know what you think and if like sort of, like, work with the responses or how you engage your audience to see, like, what direction, like, if they... Well, and also the other question is, are you making it for yourself? or Are you making it for your listeners? Because, like, you could say, I'm not enjoying what I was doing. Like, screw it. But if you're, like, concerned that people are going to react, then I just think, like, be, like, we're trying this out. This is an experiment. Let me know what you think. Or, like, what do you want to hear more of? Because you might get some great input from your listeners too on how to mix up the format but like if you want to try something different out for like one or two episodes that's not going to change your listenership and it might help you like discover something really exciting.
4: I was really worried when we stopped doing um, Two Tooth and a Lie that like it was our thing and nobody has ever (laughs) nobody has ever been like you know what I miss it like nobody's reached out about it so I think it was okay hi guys
1: Um, that was loud Uh, uh,
4: it seems you have like a good range of uh, DIY to uh, public radio podcasting and since it's kind of hit mainstream and brands are reaching out and wanting to do the serial effect and bring in that into podcasting can you speak to like the fears of what the integration to money would bring to your community or even the positives of it
3: if if money would allow me to interact with someone while I'm producing my show I'd be all for it that's that's like I think uh, but I like for for my podcast I really do feel like it's such a a lot of me is interjected into it but not in a way that's that's necessarily my personality in a genuine way so um, yeah I think I see no downside for money on my podcast (laughs)
2: It's hard to make money, though. And once once you're making a lot of money, numbers come into it, eyeballs, as they say, come into it, clicks come into it, and that may not be a world you want to get into. There's a lot that goes into that. The more money there is, the less power you have, the less control you have. You know, the good thing about not making money is you have complete creative freedom, which is worth a lot, I think. You know, It doesn't pay the bills, but from you know, a creative standpoint, I think you should have a two-track system where this is not how you make money anyway. You have your day job, like the sociologist, and then you do what you want to do on the side. But once you start going in it for money, it can be very frustrating.
1: I mean, I think there's something to be said about I can't I can't speak to the WNYC side at all, but, like, uh, the fact is that there's a ton of networks that are growing, like, a ton of networks that are looking for new shows all the time. Like, if you can carve out, like, for me, it wasn't sustainable for me to have a day job and to do podcasting on the side. Like, I had to figure out a way to do, make podcasting my day job. Like, I couldn't, or I had to not want to do podcasting anymore, but, like, I had to make it work, and so, like, networks are looking for content right now and if you like i don't think there's anything wrong with finding a network that's like in line with your values and shopping it around i think making a living off of doing something creative is doesn't make it like less creative if you maintain control of what you're making so and and yes like that can change that ownership can change but like if you work with a really great network maybe you'll find someone who like isn't trying to make you change and will pay you because lots of people are doing that too. So I I think, um, I just, I wouldn't shut yourself off from it. If you, being able to make money and doing a creative endeavor simultaneously is like a goal I think for a lot of people. And if you can figure out a way to maintain the two and like, or combine the two and make it sustainable, I say go for it, yeah.
7: Hi, um, like so many people here, I have a podcast and I like really believe in it and I love it and I want to know how, I just want to know the best trick for having it grow. Like I have listeners and I really want more and more listeners. I don't know if I want to become part of a network. I don't care if I make a dime. My podcast is called Podcast Podcast. It's about podcasts. I want to connect with other podcasts. (laughs) That's all I want. How do I do... I'm on Twitter, and I feel like like I tweet at people with podcasts. And I feel like I'm annoying the shit out of everyone. Like, I, I, I'm dying to be part of that community, and I'm dying for my podcast to. one want more ears, I want more collaboration. Should, should I have more guests? Should I be trying to get on other people's shows? How do, I, how do I get into this cool community of podcasters?
1: I mean, a model that works really well is cross promoting. So, like, if there's another podcast that's in line with like what you're doing or like a friend, then you're like, hey, give a shout out to my show. I'll give a shout out to yours that's a great way to grow and it benefits everybody so that's one recommendation is just getting your name out there there's lots of like great local like New York Public Radio has like a listserv that's very popular it's a good place to network there's events I think talking to people and meeting people but I think uh, it is it's hard it's hard and it takes work and it takes time but I think um, it's Right now, it's about, like, getting as much exposure as possible, and I think, like, cross-promoting. That's, like, what I would do is start networking with other podcasts and see if you can create sort of, like, a megaphone effect for yourself and also support other
2: shows. And doing what you're doing now, reaching out, coming out to like-minded, meeting like-minded people, getting the word out. Don't ever feel you're bothering someone. If you tweet to them, they could... You know, be very, um, they would love it. You know, most of the time, and if they don't love it, it may not be someone you'd want to work with anyway. So I would not be, as long as you're not obnoxious about it, but I think moving forward is very important, and it's a job. You know, there's a creative aspect and there's a networking and PR aspect, and both are difficult and have to be worked at.
0: We have time for one more question uh, over here. Oh my god, I'm the
4: special And ones, if there's okay.
0: uh, if there's a chance afterwards uh, you can Chat with folks out in the lobby.
4: You can linger. Yeah,
6: I feel so I'll special. <laughs> all right, thanks. Um, you guys are all really great. My name is Anita. Um, I have a podcast. Well, I'm trying to create a podcast. Um, so just, it's just me and my friends, just two people, and we're trying to turn a live storytelling event into a podcast. So
3: I have questions for you, Joanna. Um, so cool. I listen to Dope, Two Dope Queens and So Many White Guys. And so it's highly produced and it sounds amazing and seamless. Um, so and you guys have sound engineers and designers and all that kind of stuff, so that's probably why, like, it sounds amazing also. Um, But, like, so my question is, like, with the interviews, how much prep do you do for that? And um, also... Like with the live show, do you tape the live show and then does Phoebe and Jessica come into the studio afterwards and they do the intros and outros? Or is it, like, what's the, I guess, like, process and how you do all that?
1: Yeah, um, so for interview prep for so many white guys, I can't really speak to it because I don't actually do the prep for that show. I um, So, unfortunately, I can't help you there. I think it just depends on, like, how thorough of an interview that you want to do. Rachel Neal is the producer of that show and she's, like totally phenomenal and you know um so i can't really speak to the prep side so much but when it comes to producing two Dope queens yeah we record the shows live and then we do like longer tracking sessions with phoebe and jessica um and that's how we record uh no it doesn't really matter when we do because we like know the lineup ahead of time typically so um we, yeah, it doesn't matter really when we record them if it's before or after, but then, um, I mean, my recommendation would be it is like the making something sound good yeah. is so time consuming, and so, like, for me, when I was starting out edi- editing, like, just working with tape from a live show, is that I just started like. Begging engineers around the station to like take some extra time before or after work to teach me how to do it, and the thing is, there's like so many people who are doing this kind of work in New York that I might just like put some feelers out and ask people to like show you how to yeah. do it. That's my recommendation. But in terms of like the actual process, yeah, like um, we collect the tape, listen to the tape, then I work with my. Like, typically we do, like, a paper edit of everything, and then we go in and make, like, rough cuts, um, and then we hear how it sounds after we make all of the rough cuts, and then we, like, put together the final thing and make it sound nice.
3: So how long does it take to make one episode?
1: Oh, man. Um, normally it takes us about a week to produce an episode. <laughs> yeah.
6: I have, like, a million more, but I'm going
1: to sit down. Okay, well, I'll be around after if you want to talk more. Yeah. sure.
6: Um... Hi. Thanks. Um, so, this is directed at Anna, but it's open to everyone. Um, me? Yeah. Okay. Um, so, I guess what fascinates me or, like, what makes my soul glow is, like, finding the parallel in diversity. So, like... Um, I'm really fascinated with the concept that you like grew up half your life in Japan and grew up here like how does that work with comedy like that uh, balance like what's too alien to, to be funny but what's too alien not to be funny like how do you work on that
5: uh, well I, I came from a stand up background I did stand up on and off for about four years before solo started um, so all my comedy is about being Japanese and Jewish um, what was your question well, what?
6: sorry, because it's more like... Um, how does it... Well, like, because like, you, you're talking about how, like, there's cultural differences. So, uh-huh. like, there's things that are funny in Japan that aren't uh-huh. funny here, like, uh-huh. but you grew up in Japan, so certain things that you, you want to use in comedy but won't get any laughs here, or things that you might find insight from Japan that, you, that would work in America, like, like, and there's this... What's that balance? Just, I, I... My question is more of just share that experience, really.
5: <laughs> um... I would say I still struggle with uh, identity. Um, I can think both in Japanese and English, but um, what were you going to say? I was going to say that that? Anna
4: has an amazing web series Um, called Japandering, which is all about your experience. Yeah. is shot in, in Japan and yeah. it's just a really... About learned, me
5: pandering to Japanese
4: people. <laughs> I just feel like having known you for a long time, I still learned so much about you from that web series and yeah. it's also really beautiful. Um, but just like that balance of where you fit in comedically and also just globally and identity-wise. So yeah. I so I would appreciate say yourself. <laughs>
5: <laughs> <laughs> I don't know your cultural background, but Yeah. Thank you.
0: Thanks. All right. Well, I want to thank everybody for coming and especially our amazing panel Tim, Anna, Emily, Mike, and Joanna. Thank you
3: guys so much.